Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. If you got a Bible this morning, turn to the book of Nahum. We're in a series uh, called Summer Shorts, and we've been looking at short, small books in the Bible that have a powerful message to them. Uh, anybody ever heard a message on Nahum before at church? One person. Great. This is going to be awesome. You guys are going to love this. It's going to be a great day today. Um, yeah, there's a reason that we don't hear many messages on some of these books that we've been looking at over the last three weeks. Uh, it's because a lot of people don't know how to read them. Uh, we don't know how to make sense of them in the context of uh, of the time period versus where we are now. Uh, some of us don't know why they're important, uh, or, or we just we read them and we don't understand what it's talking about. And so a lot of times we'll just kind of avoid books like this, but they're, they're important for us to know and understand because they really do still speak to where we are today. And God has this ability to use messages from the Old Testament that are still applicable to our lives today. And so that's why we're doing this. We started out the series looking at the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and Habakkuk was someone who was a prophet of God, but instead of having a word from God to give to people, Habakkuk brought a complaint or multiple complaints to God. And he said, God, look, I look around me and I see violence and I see oppression and I see injustice and I just see all this wickedness and evil that's going on in the world, and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. Where are you? Right? Anybody still asking those questions today in our world? It's relevant, right? We're going, God, where are you? And the answer that we don't really like that God gives to Habakkuk was, hey, listen, I'm going to do something about that. Just wait. It's, it's not going to be right now. It's going to be in my timing, right? And we don't necessarily love that answer. We're like, God, why don't you do something now? Like there's an issue, there's a problem, there's injustice, there's violence, there's oppression, there's people being taken advantage of, there's evil, there's wickedness. Why don't you crush it now? And God's like, I'll get to that. Just wait, my timeline, right? Not yours. Then we moved to the book of Jonah last week, and we looked at Jonah, who's this prophet who rebels against God. God gives him a message to go to the Assyrian people, the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were uh, horrifically brutal people. They had invented ways of torturing people that were uh, unseen in the world up until that time. They were awful. And Jonah's supposed to go to them and offer them a message of repentance. And Jonah doesn't want to go, so what's he do? He runs away, right? He goes to as far away as he possibly can from God. But God has other plans. He gets Jonah, gives him a second chance, sends him to Nineveh. Jonah goes, he preaches, hey, 40 days and you're going to be wiped out. And Jonah's like excited about that. Like 40 days, that's all the time you got. And then he goes and he finds a place on a hillside and he's just going to watch for the destruction. But instead, the people listen to his message, they repent, they turn to God and God does not come against him with wrath. He shows them grace. He shows them mercy. He gives them a second chance. And Jonah's bitter about it. He's angry about it, right? And so that's kind of where we left off last week was going, God, I don't want to give a message of grace to people because I want them to get what they deserve. I want them to pay for their sins. I want them to have to pay for all the evil that they've brought into the world. And God's going to go, hey, listen, if I can, I'm going to redeem people. I want to give people justice through salvation. I'm going to pay the cost of their sin through Jesus. They don't have to die. And Jonah, you don't have to die. Jesus is going to die on their behalf. But again, the message is if you're just going to wait and let's see how these things play out because God is long-suffering, he's patient, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, right? Now we're going to get to the book of Nahum 
And I'm going to give you four things that we're going to look at in Nahum today or things to pay attention to as we read the text, because Nahum is like the follow-up book to Jonah, right? So when we left Assyria the last time, we see them repent and they turn their ways over to God. They go, we're going to re- you know, not do the wicked, evil things anymore. We're going to follow God. We're going to repent of what we've done. Well, now a hundred years later, they've gone back to their wicked ways. And Nahum is written as a follow-up to the book of Jonah to say, let's see what God is now going to do after another hundred years of the Assyrians just bringing evil and wickedness and awful things into the world. And so this is the response that we're going to see. So after 200 years of the Assyrian dominance in the region, all the violence, all the horrible things these people have brought, God is finally going to bring justice and deal with the wickedness that they've brought into the world. But here's what we need to know. The book is not written to Nineveh. The book is not written to the Assyrians. The book is written to Israel. And you go, why in the world would God do that? Why would he write the book to Israel? And here's why. Because he wants this book to be a word of comfort to them. Hey, all of the things that you've been under, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the suffering you've experienced because of Assyria, their time has now come. And I'm going to bring justice against them. And you're going to experience comfort because of the justice that they receive. So this book is written not to the Assyrians, but to the Israelites. To go, the day of wrath of God is coming, and you're going to experience a season of peace. So hang on and be diligent in following me and being faithful. So it's written 100 years after the book of Jonah. And when we studied Jonah last week, we saw that the people repented, but they, that was short-lived. They go back to their wicked ways, and now God's ready to bring justice against these people and all their wickedness. Here's where we find Nahum as he's writing. He's writing this about 10 to 15 years before the fall of Nineveh. All right, so... Jonah, or excuse me, Nahum is looking forward. These are not events that he's writing in response to. These are things that God is saying, this is what's going to happen. Here's what is about to take place, right? And so Nahum is writing these things to comfort Israel, but to foretell what's getting ready to come. But even after he writes them, another decade passes before God does anything, right? And so you see this message still waiting and God's still doing things on his timeline. Things have gone unpunished for the last 200 years, but justice happens on God's timeline. So we have to remember that while God is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, he does not overlook sin and evil. He will deal with it, right? So that's kind of the message of Nahum. And then here's number four, and I'm going to invite Justin and Aisha to come up. We're going to read through the entire book of Nahum together this morning. But here's what we find. Babylon, along with the Medes, destroyed Nineveh around 612 BC. And the remains of the city were not discovered by archaeologists until 1842, north of Mosul, Iraq, what's modern-day Mosul, Iraq. All right, and so you see this destruction that takes place in 612 BC, and then it's not until 1842 that the remains of the city are found. And that's prophetic, and we're going to talk about why that matters. But I wanted to give you those few things to just give us some context around what we're looking at today, to give us some background understanding about the things that are taking place so we have a little bit of understanding as we read this to know what's going on, all right? So as we jump in, I'm going to invite Justin and Aisha to come and, uh, and read with us. We're going to go through the entire book of Nahum this morning. If you want to follow along with us, we would love to invite you to do that. Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, um, the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with his wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind of, and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel weather 
and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make the end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, one has come forth who plots against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Look, there in the mountains, the feet who of who the sorry, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Chapter 2. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. The destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal of the chariots flashes on the day they're made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on the way. They dashed to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give away, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den? The place where they fed their young, where the lion and the lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lyres with the kill and the dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour you, young, young lions. I will leave you with no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Chapter 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number. People stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved the nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk, and you will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees in their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. They've increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and they fly away. The guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts. They settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Father, we thank you so very much for the opportunity to be gathered here with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I just pray that as this word is being taught today, that there will be ears to receive it. Lord, allow us, Lord, to be cleansed by your word. Uh, Father God, to hide it in our heart. Lord God, to be doers of it and not hearers only. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, and for $15 an hour, Justin will come read to your kids at night. Um, that's phenomenal. Morgan Freeman over there. It's good. So, uh, well, Nahum starts off very differently than Jonah, right? Jonah's this narrative. There's this kind of idea that God is going to move and do something uh, to bring redemption and to bring grace. Uh, and Jonah's running away from that. Nahum starts from the very beginning with this poetic structure rather than narrative. There's a fiery tone that pronounces judgment against these people. Uh, and there's beginning here with no hope of repentance, Right, so when you go back and read Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, just to kind of put some context around what we're looking at, it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. His clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? And that's meant to kind of make you ask that question and go, hey, listen, the answer is no one. Who can stand when God moves in anger? Who can stand when God moves to bring judgment? No one can do that. It says his wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. And he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. So God wants us to know that while he is slow to anger, 
His patience not, must not be mistaken for powerlessness. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you just to see this, write it down or follow along on our app, that God's patience must not be mistaken for powerlessness. That while God waits to bring justice, waits to deal with his adversaries, waits to, to bring final retribution to evil and wickedness, he's not powerless in the meantime. God is watching everything that is happening in our world. He sees all of the evil, all of the injustice, all of the oppression, all of the violence. He is taking notes. And on the day when he comes to move in power against his adversaries, the question, who can stand? The answer is no one. But he's still good. He's a place of comfort for those who follow him, who trust in him. But if you're his enemy, he will have no choice but to destroy your evil and your wickedness. So this has kind of been the theme for these three weeks that we've been looking at. God is slow to anger, abounding in love, but eventually justice must come. Like God is going to be waiting patiently for people to turn to him, to repent. But a day will come when he has to judge all the evil and the wickedness. And God knows the right way and the right time to bring perfect judgment. Our role in the middle of that then is to wait patiently and learn to trust him. And that's so hard for us, right? When we're like, man, I, I just want to see God do things on my timeline, my timetable, the way I would do it. And he's going, just, you have to wait. You have to be patient. You have to let me do things my way. I'm God, you are not. And so our role is to wait and be patient and trust God as he does these things. So the book of Nahum moves really rapidly between metaphors, pictures, poetic language. He's really given us a description of all the things that he's doing and as a way to both bless and destroy. So remember, when you talk about these things and how God holds these in perfect balance, that he knows how to bless those who follow him. He's writing this to comfort Israel, but he's also writing this to let Israel know that the day of judgment and justice is coming against the Ninevites and the Assyrians. And so he says, I hold these things in perfect balance to both bless and to destroy, but it's a message of hope for his people. So here's what we see in chapter one, verse 12. It says, this is what the Lord says, as we're talking about this balance. Although they, Nineveh, have allies and are numerous, they'll be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I have now, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh, you will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images of idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So now, remember what we said earlier this morning. Nahum is written uh, a, a decade or more before Assyria falls, but the prophecy is 100% accurate. Like what Nahum says about the destruction of Nineveh and the fall of the Assyrians is absolutely accurate. And so we see this and God says, I'm going to destroy the city. There's going to be no descendants. There's going to be nothing left. And again, going back to what we said at the beginning of the message, in 612 BC, the Babylonians come with the Medes and they destroy Nineveh. This city who has fortresses, this city who has walls, this city who's been great, who no one could ever conquer. And all of a sudden, after 200 years, the Babylonians come in and just wipe it out. And it's not until 1842 that archaeologists discover any remains of this city. And so what God has said, he absolutely does. In fact, when you read in chapter 2, it describes the destruction of the city. We're not going to go back and read all of that chapter, but it's really chapter 2 is a, a kind of a look into the destruction of the city. And it says this, Nahum says they will destroy the walls, they'll be attacked, the river gates will be thrown open, the palaces will collapse, they plunder the silver and the gold, and Nahum even says that silver and gold is an endless supply in chapter 9. 
So here's what's interesting about archaeology. Typically, when archaeologists find cities like this, remains in the rubble, they'll find lots of coins and pottery and different things like that. In Nineveh, as they're excavating the city, there's very little to be found at all. There's just the walls of the city. Everything else is completely gone. And so Nineveh would have been like Fort Knox for us. When the Assyrians conquered a nation, they took all their silver, all their gold, all their valuables, and they took it to Nineveh, to the capital. And that's where they stored everything. And so God goes, all that silver, all that gold, it will be completely gone. Guess what archaeologists found when they excavated the city? Nothing. <laughs> like there's no silver, there's no coins, there's no gold. And so they're going, what we expect to find in places like this is not. Why? Because that's what God said would happen. 10 to 15 years before it ever took place, God said, this is what's going to happen. God knows what he's doing. He knows how to d describe the future. And so for us then, when we get to chapter 3, we find the description of how God exposes Nineveh for her crimes. And the essence of this final chapter is basically, hey, listen, you've been so destructive, you've been so evil, you've been so wicked, so vile, so murderous. Now it's all going to come back on you. And the things that you've done, you're now going to experience for yourself. And so God's judgment comes in that way when we get to chapter 3. He says you're going to be destroyed, but you're also going to be humiliated. Here's what we find in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He says, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips and the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. They're all about this massive empire of their army. He says, but there will be many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton prostitution or wanton lust of a prostitute alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I'm against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and will say, Nineveh is here in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Now, the English translation that we have, and especially in the NIV, they really clean this up for us to make it really nice and Christian-y, okay? When they write this in the Hebrew, and when you go back and read this, this is offensive language. When he goes, hey, I'm going to lift the skirts up over your face. He doesn't go, I'm going to show him your nakedness. He goes, I'm going to expose all of your private parts to everybody in the world. And when he says, I'm going to let them uh, fling filth at you, filth is not what he's talking about. It's not like we're going to pick up dirt and throw it at you. He's going, think more along the lines of dung, all right? Think more along the lines of we're going to just sling crap at you. And the only reason I'll stop there is because some of you would send me bad emails if I go to the next word. But that's what he's talking about. He's like, listen, I want you to know that you're going to be completely exposed. You're going to be completely destroyed, and we are going to mock you in the process. There's going to be a destruction that you've never experienced. The way that you treated people, you're going to be treated with contempt and with scorn. So because you're going to be exposed for who you are. And then God's final word to Nineveh closes the book. But it gives us perspective on how the nations around this dominant power feel about God's judgment. So we go, well, how did the world feel about that when this took place? And here's what we find, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. It says, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. He's not talking about taking a nap. They're dead, right? He's going, they're asleep. They're slumbering. They are resting. They are dead and in their graves. Your people then are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Right, so when Nahum is writing this and what God is saying to the king of Assyria here, he's going, listen, 
everyone is going to rejoice when you're destroyed and gone. The world that you've conquered all around you, the region that you've conquered, the way that you've gone about this, God is going to bring judgment and the world is going to celebrate your fall because you've been so vile, so wicked, so evil, so heartless, so cruel that everyone is going to clap and cheer and celebrate. And so after all the destruction that they've brought to the world, justice is finally going to come from God, right? Now, for Israel, God's going to say, so there's going to be a time of peace for you. The Assyrians are no longer going to have to be an instrument that I use to discipline you and to bring judgment to you. And he's hoping that Israel will experience a time where they turn to God, where they trust in God, where they walk with God, where they're honoring God and choosing to follow him in the way that he requires. But instead, what happens is Israel still, again, rebels against God. They continue to worship idols. They continue to act with injustice in the world. And so the nation that conquers Assyria, Babylon, the next thing that we're going to see in the progression of history is that Babylon is going to be used as a tool that God puts to, to, uh, to discipline Israel again. And to say they're going to, again, there's going to come a time of justice because of your wickedness. And he has to send the Babylonians against Israel. And so God is constantly at work in doing this. So it leaves the question for us this morning. We're going to just look at a couple of things as we start to close this up. The question then for us is, how do we approach God and understand what he's doing in the world today as a result of this book? Right? And so there's two things that I want us to kind of follow a trail on here. And I want us to see what God's doing uh, because as Christians, as we think about this text, we have the benefit of the cross of Jesus to look through, to go, all right, how does God think about us? How does God think about injustice? How does he think about oppression? How does he think about people who are, lack mercy? And we look through the lens of the cross and we see that through Jesus, God took out all of his wrath against sin on his son. And so we don't have to pay the ultimate punishment that we deserve because of what Jesus did on our behalf and giving his life up for us. But we also have to think about the world around us. And we go, okay, well, two questions then. If God is slow to anger, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, how does God act toward believers when we sin? And number two, how is God going to handle the final judgment of the nations and the people who have rejected him? And so that's what I want us to finish our time looking at. It's just these two questions. So let's deal with them each quickly as we start to wrap this up. Number one, how does God act toward believers when we sin? And here's the answer to that. When, as Christians, when Christians sin, we don't face God's destruction, but we do face his discipline, right? And so because of the things that Jesus has done for us in bearing our guilt, our reproach, our shame, all the things that we sing about in these songs this morning, because Jesus took our place on the cross and carried our scorn, and because God punished him, when we sin as Christians, God doesn't destroy us. He doesn't have to act toward us in destruction, but he does act toward us in loving discipline, like God is never going to leave us to just wander off on sinful paths and not do anything about it. That your sin brings up God's anger in a way that he looks through the cross and remembers that Jesus has paid for your sin, but he still has to lovingly discipline you and guide you back to his heart. Right? So the same thing that I do as a father to my kids. If I see them going in a direction that looks like it's going to be problematic, if it's going to be something that's going to be destructive to them, if it's going to be something that's going to be harmful to them or others, there may be times where discipline has to take place to draw them back to hopefully a place where they're going to walk in line with truth. And that they're going to act in things that are going to say, hey, I don't, I'm not disciplining you just because I like to punish you. I see this being an, a terrible path and it's going to end in some horrible things either for you or others. And I want to bring you back to a place where you're walking in truth. And so discipline is meant as a loving way for God to bring us back under his belt. So we walk in faith with him when we stop to understand that our sin has to be disciplined. 
Um, not too long ago, I was listening to uh, an interview of a pastor. I don't know this guy very well. I know his name a little bit. Some of you may know him, so I'm not endorsing him or anything, but there's a, a pastor named John Bevere uh, who was talking about an interview that he had done years ago in ministry uh, with a guy named Jim Baker. Now, some of you may be aware of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and all the stuff that kind of went on. They were kind of the early on American televangelist. Uh, Tammy Faye wore more makeup than four women should probably wear at any one time. Uh, and that was kind of her thing. And so, uh, but they were always on TV and they were televangelists and they were always the kind of, it was like, if you send us money, God will bless you and do all these things, right? And so, um, so they had this huge ministry and all these things. Well, eventually, uh, Jim got caught in an affair. Uh, there was charges of, of sexual misconduct. Uh, there was wire tampering. There was criminal fraud and mail tampering, like all these kind of things that just gives Christianity a black eye, right? And lived out these things that, that were destructive to the name of Christ and to his kingdom here on earth, right? And so Jim Baker ends up going to prison for all of these things. And he spends years in prison. Well, he invites this guy, Pastor Bevere, to come and to, to interview him and to speak with him and have a conversation. And so just a little bit of how that went. Um, the pastor sat down with, with Jim Baker, and here was the first things out of Jim Baker's mouth. He said, this prison was not God's judgment on my life. It was his mercy. If I would have continued to live the way I was living, I would have been separated from God forever in hell. And then Pastor Bevere asked Jim, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? And Jim said, I didn't. I love Jesus all the way through, but I didn't fear God. And there are millions of Americans just like me who love Jesus, but have no fear of God. That I can just do whatever I want and God will never bring justice to me, never bring punishment to me, never bring discipline to me. I don't think God will ever act to correct my course. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I love Jesus, all about Jesus, but I do not think that God will act in justice toward my sinfulness. And that's a wrong approach for us. That as believers in Christ, that we need to understand that God still disciplines and punishes sin, even in our life that he corrects us because he loves us to bring us back to a place of relationship with him. And I think that this is one of those lessons in Nahum where we figure out that we should humble ourselves before God has to humble us. Like that's part of the message here. Humble yourself so God doesn't have to step in and do it. And so when we move to the New Testament, we find this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And then James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, James 4 says this, but he, God, gives more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. But humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Right, so this is one of those places, as they're quoting Proverbs chapter 3, this is one of those places for us to go, hey, don't be so arrogant as to think that you're living in sin and walking outside of fellowship with God, and that God's just going to overlook that offense. Like God will move towards you to discipline you properly in a loving way that invites you to come back into relationship with him, but he will not overlook the offense. So let us humble ourselves before God. Let's keep the picture of Jesus on the cross, bearing our sin, bearing our shame in mind, 
that we don't want to bring shame and reproach to the name of God by acting in sin and living in perpetual sin, that we want to live in righteousness and holiness and be called to a higher standard that God has invited us into in relationship with him. So then that moves us to the second question this morning. And how is God going to handle the final judgment of the nations and the people that rejected him? And in the New Testament, especially in Revelation, we're going to read a long passage in Revelation in just a moment, uh, chapter 18. And we're going to see how God describes, again, Babylon. But this time it's not the ancient city of Babylon, it's future version of Babylon, or in our world today, what might be just considered the world that we live in. We live in Babylon. We live in a world that's sinful, that's against God, that is trying to do everything they possibly can to reject God, renounce God, walk away from God. And so we're essentially living in this place in our modern time of Babylon. And so God writes and he says, I'm going to bring destruction against that at a time in the future. And it gives us a picture of this last judgment against the world when Jesus returns. So if you will, just read with me from chapter 18 of Revelation. He says, after I saw this, another angel coming down from heaven, and he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, like Justin Ward's voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crime. So he's calling us as Christians, hey, come out of that world. Come out of that lifestyle. Don't engage in the things of Babylon. Don't engage in the things of the world. Don't engage in the things that are against God. Verse 6, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and they will mourn over her. Terrified at that moment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings being sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit that you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained wealth from her, from her will be uh, cut off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in the fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin." Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. 
Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sounds of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. So do you notice similarities between Nahum's message and John's message in Revelation and what God gives him to say about a future coming judgment that's coming on the world? For everyone who acts against God, for everyone who rejects God, there's similarities in the language here because all through the Old Testament, God's giving us almost commercials of what he's going to do in the future. And the things that are going to happen point back to the things that have happened and the things that did happen pointed forward to the things that will happen. And so God's always giving us these pictures. But there is a big difference between Nahum and Revelation. When Assyria fell, we talked about this earlier, when Assyria fell, do you remember what happened? All the nations around them celebrated the fall of Assyria. When Nineveh was destroyed, everybody clapped and cheered and celebrated because the tyranny had been broken. But in the end, when Babylon falls, the kingdom of the Antichrist, those who stand against God, the whole world will have drunk from this city's power. And everybody will weep and mourn because their destruction is tied to this city. The only people who celebrate are commanded by God. He says, the heavens, the people of God, the prophets and the apostles. Rejoice because finally justice has come against the earth. And as followers of Christ, those who believe in him and trust in him were spared from that condemnation. But from all who reject him, from all who turn against him, there's destruction instead of deliverance. And so for us this morning, the last thing that I want to give you is one last note and one last passage of scripture. When we think about these things and we go, well, when I look out into the world and see all the violence, all the things that are happening, all the evil and wickedness, where is God? The last blank on your outline is this. We await the return of Jesus to right every wrong and to judge every evil. Jesus will defeat sin, so we must not give up as we wait for his ultimate comfort to be revealed. When we look in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 48.3 says, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. So Isaiah says, hey, listen, God's been watching. God's been keeping a record of all the evil, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the violence, all the wickedness, everything that's wrong in our world because of sin. God's been keeping up with that, and he says, and in a moment, I'm going to act. Did you notice in Revelation when he talks about Babylon's fall? He says, in one hour it came. In one hour there was destruction. In one hour, everything went up in smoke. It was immediate, it was sudden, and it was final. And so for us, as we think about this, what's God saying to us? If you go back in Nahum chapter 1, you're going to find that he says something really interesting, and it's kind of pointing forward to Jesus. Go back and find it in my, uh, my passage here. Um, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 8, 15, he says, Look, they're on the mountains the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, 
Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. And so when we think about this, we go, hey, who's the one on the mountains bringing peace? It's Jesus. Nahum's looking forward to the day when someone will come and proclaim peace, proclaim the gospel, and will give his life in response to evil. That God does not desire to judge the evil. God does not delight in destroying those who rebel against him. But because he is just and because he is good, he must deal with sin. And so our response in this world at this time, if you don't know Christ, is to say, what does it look like if I were to stand before God today? Would I have peace from him because I know his son and I've been forgiven of all my sin? Or would I stand guilty before God and my sin would not be paid for and instead of discipline that I might receive, there's destruction. And so let me beg you today that you don't leave this place without having a solid answer to that question. Going, what is God wanting to do in your life in this moment to bring mercy, to bring grace, to bring hope? And all you have to do is humble yourself before him in order that he will lift you up. You do not want God to humble you. So humble yourself before him. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.